All right, so um, I'm going to try and preach the sermon this morning. I've been quite sick this week, so I hope my voice holds out. And if I have to occasionally mute to cough or sneeze, then please bear with me. Um, and uh, in case anybody's worried, I will not be coming to the Sunday night service in the Sandlot tonight. Don't want to spread this, um, but I'll be very sad to miss you all. Um, so let's pray as we, as we begin. Father, we ask for your help to understand your word. We ask for your spirit to fill our hearts. Um, please would we be soft-hearted before your word, opening ourselves to you and allowing you to do the work you want to do in us. We want to be better people. Um, we look to you to, to make that happen. And um, we yield ourselves to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to start with a story about uh, a doctor uh, that's been on my mind this week. Um, Dr. Alexander Fleming, I've told a little bit of his story in a sermon before. In 1928, a scientist called Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. And Dr. Fleming discovered antibiotics essentially by accident because he was a bit of a slob and he didn't bother to clean out his petri dishes before he went away on vacation. He just left his bacterial samples sitting around in his lab. And when he came back to work, he found that most of his samples were still fine. But in a couple of them, a fungus had grown up and all the bacteria were dead. And Dr. Fleming was pretty annoyed. But when he got over his annoyance, he realized that he might have just made the greatest discovery in medical history. Uh, he'd found a substance that kills bacteria and he was on track for a Nobel Prize. So his story is a pretty great story, um, but I really just butchered it by only giving you the punchline. If I was going to tell his story properly and really give you a sense of the emotional impact of what he achieved, I'd have to start with a lot more backstory, wouldn't I? I'd have to paint for you what it was like to grow up in the world before penicillin was discovered, what it was like to grow up in the year 1900. Because in 1900, 30% of all deaths in America occurred in children under five. And the average life expectancy was only about 47. And if you accidentally cut yourself with a kitchen knife while you were preparing your dinner and you got blood poisoning, that would be the end of your life. We can only begin to understand what a miracle it is to have antibiotics in the world today if we fully grasp what life was like before. And in a similar way, if we want to understand what it means for us that Jesus has saved us, we first need a good idea of where we'd be without him, what he has saved us from. We need to know the bad news before we can fully appreciate the good news. So when Paul uh, starts his long explanation of the gospel in the book of Romans, that's where he starts in verse 18 with the bad news, which sets up for the great rescue. So if you've got a, if you can reach a Bible, please open it up uh, to Romans and we're still in Romans chapter one. And we're going to start at verse 18 with the problem. Uh, the world has a big problem, a problem of sin that we've broken faith with God. And Paul says that God is angry about that and he's getting ready to judge. In fact, Paul says his judgment has already begun. Paul says in verse 18 that God's wrath is revealed. It's revealed already. It's already here. And Paul explains that we can see its effects already in the world, in ourselves. And there are three sort of stages of the wrath of God being revealed. First, there's the darkening of our hearts. 
second, the dishonoring of our bodies, and third, the debasing of our minds. So notice that all these effects are within people, in our hearts, in our bodies, and in our minds. These things happen inside us because of God's righteous anger at our sin. So God's going to later judge the world with external things like wars and famines and diseases. And maybe we see a few small glimpses of that happening already. But Paul here wants to focus not on the way that God's wrath is poured out around us, but on the disaster that's already unfolding inside us. That's where his attention is. All right, so first, we're seeing the darkening of our hearts. This is verses 18 through 23. Paul begins, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And skipping ahead to verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, so the problem begins with idolatry. Idolatry is the first step. Um, idolatry is loving created things more than our creator. At the outset, we fail to give God the thanks and the honor that he alone deserves. So the attention of our love and worship gets distracted. It gets attached to material things. Our thinking becomes futile. Our hearts are darkened, full of false love, love for the wrong things. Back up in verse 18, Paul says that the wrath of God is directed at two things, at ungodliness and unrighteousness. All right, and if you look at those Greek words, ungodliness means having no love for God. And unrighteousness or injustice means having no love for our neighbor. So our problem starts with our hearts at misdirected love, at breaking the great commandment. Our hearts lead our minds astray. That's the way it works, not the other way around. Because Paul says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul says that the evidence of our senses and our reason leads us to God, inevitably. And of course, there's a good deal of debate today about whether this is really true, whether atheism is really rationally defensible. But I agree with Paul on this point, and I think that wherever you look, if you're honest, you bump into God, whether you study science or philosophy or history or whatever it is you're studying, but especially if you look at yourself, God then becomes unmistakable. And if you read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis really takes you on a journey of exploring yourself and discovering the reality of God. So when I look at myself, I find that I grieve over the evils of the world and I get angry at injustice. So I feel strongly about these things. Uh, these emotions feel bad. They're not pleasant, but they're entirely irrational unless there is objective morality in the universe, unless there's a real right and wrong. And that could only come from a moral God. I also find ins inside myself a hunger Lewis says this, that nothing in this world can satisfy. And Lewis says that it demonstrates that we were made for another world. And then third, I also find myself to be quite a great being. 
more complex, more sophisticated, noble, and intelligent than anything I can find around me or anything that I myself can create. So if I, though vastly intelligent and creative, cannot generate anything as complex as myself, then how could I exist except by the deliberate creation of a being more superior to myself than I can possibly imagine? All of these discoveries, which are obvious to any human being if we look inside ourselves, make God essential. So I agree with Paul that we can only deny God's obvious right to our worship by deliberately suppressing the truth. That's what he says in verse 18. We know what's true and we suppress it. That's a very active verb, which means to restrain, hinder or hold down by force. So it's like when you're out in the swimming pool and you have something that floats like a ball or a surfboard and you hold it down under the water you play this game you try and stand on it as long as you can you have to focus because it's always trying to get up up out of uh, out from under you and god and paul says that's what non-god fearers are doing with the truth all the time they're holding it down suppressing it holding it under the water and a moment's honest reflection would bring the truth splashing right up to the surface and all of us have done this this isn't talking about other people it's you and me too if we haven't been atheists, then we've doubted the truth. And if we haven't much doubted, then we've lived as practical atheists, treating the concerns of earth as more important than the concerns of heaven. So we too have exchanged the glory of God for images and allowed the love of our hearts to be misdirected to idolatry. I really want us as we go through Romans 1 to take this whole passage personally. And so we're going to go on to stage two. God's response has been to let us have our way, to give us over to the dishonoring of our bodies. So this begins in verse 24. Paul says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And you can see how clearly this flows logically out of the first stage, because, Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we see the logic that this is what our hearts chose. This is what we wanted. God's role in this is no more than just to give us up to what we have chosen. He lets us go. He yields the territory of our hearts to what we want to embrace. And that is how he reveals his wrath in us. What he does first is to give, uh, what we want to do is to give full vent to the cravings of our bodies. And I think we can interpret Paul's phrase, the dishonoring of our bodies in verse 24, in, in, in various ways. We might include gluttony or drunkenness or drug abuse, but it really does seem here that Paul's primary focus is on sexual promiscuity. Verses 24 and 25 seem to focus on heterosexual promiscuity. And verses 26 and 27 focus on homosexual promiscuity. Paul, Paul teaches that um, sex is perhaps the main thing we want to change about God's plan for us. The first thing that we would do differently if we were in charge. So we find people wanting to maybe introduce more wives or more sex without commitment, or multiple partners at the same time, or partners of the same sex. And I think we've all seen this kind of pattern play out historically. 
that we, we abandon God's ways for the sake of changing the rules about sex. So in our, we see it in our friends who give up on their faith when their church confronts them about sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. We see it in organized religions who abandon their core doctrines and even strike out as cults so that they can have multiple wives or a broader definition of marriage. And in the ancient world, it's really hard to find any form of pagan religion that doesn't involve temple prostitution, as modern Hinduism still does. So perhaps Paul is right here to place the emphasis of our bodily cravings on our sexual cravings. But if this is a remarkably consistent pattern globally and historically, then it's also in spite of all our better judgment, isn't it? Because if we weigh the pros and cons and factor in STDs and unwanted pregnancies and heartbreak and betrayal and divorce and loneliness and the rising wave now of teenage impotence, sexual promiscuity is abundantly proven over and over again to do no good to anybody. And instead, God's way of monogamous marriage has proven itself far better a thousand times over. And I really think Paul's putting this whole thing forward as evidence. This should speak to us because Paul's saying, look at this. This is what you chose. You chose this instead of God. You put yourself in the driving seat and this is where you drove to. Where did it leave you? Was it a good choice for you? Is it not the case that the cravings of your own body are a far worse tyrant than God could ever be? And by suppressing the truth, you've only punished yourself, driven yourself into the ground, and handing you over to your own cravings was the sternest discipline that God could have given you. We observe that our own desires are profoundly broken that they are not trustworthy, they are not good or right, and they lead us reliably to death. And this applies both to heterosexual and homosexual lusts. They're both mentioned specifically in these verses. They're both labeled dishonorable by Paul, marks that our bodies are leading us in the way of death. And Paul writes this not to condemn us or to drive us to despair, but to prepare us for the, the glorious gospel that's coming up right? So Jesus is going to deliver us, all of us, from these bodies of death and give us his Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. But that new life is going to include turning our backs on this old mistake, that we should do what our bodies tell us to do, that our fleshly desires are a helpful guide in what's good and right for us, because we see that they are not. Now, when it comes to homosexual desire in particular, Paul calls it here contrary to nature in verse 26. And that comes from the Greek word physikos, which is where we get our English word physics. So he means that it's contrary to the way that the, the earth is established, contrary to creation. It means that the desire is contrary to the design, contrary to the purpose for which God made sexual desire. And so I think for this reason, that homosexual desire should never be acted upon even within a loving and committed relationship because god created sexual desire for a purpose for the purpose of unification and procreation within a monogamous lifelong heterosexual marriage that is its nature that is its god-given purpose and to try to use it outside of that nature will never be motivated by a love for god but instead by idolatry and submission to our own bodily cravings. 
So in Paul's time, there was no such thing as gay marriage, although there were plenty of committed long-term homosexual relationships. But although Paul didn't specifically have gay marriage in view when he wrote Romans, we must still conclude that gay marriage can never be called good, even though our culture so desperately wants to call it good. And even though it often seeks a higher standard of love, commitment, and exclusivity than its heterosexual counterpart. Now, I know that some of us here today have wrestled with or are wrestling with homosexual desires along with the rest of us who have wrestled with or are wrestling with heterosexual desires. And we could all take comfort that unwanted sexual desires are common to all men and women, and that the desires themselves do not disqualify us from the grace of God. So as Paul writes Romans 1, all the people that he's talking about, all the people that he lists here in chapter 1, are people who qualify for his gospel of grace. But at the same time, we need to keep up our fight now for sexual purity against the desires of the flesh. Because Paul reminds us today that the cravings of our bodies lead to death and not to life. God knows what will bring us into fullness of joy far better than we do. So far, our rebellion against him has only gotten us into trouble. And it will only continue to get us into more trouble until we turn, repent and come back to God. So God's wrath is revealed first in the darkening of our hearts, second in the dishonoring of our bodies, and now third in the debasing of our minds. In verse 28, Paul continues, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then there's a long list. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And I think we'd agree that this last stage is the worst of all. The sexual disintegration is bad, but the mental disintegration is worse because people might at least think they want sexual freedom, but nobody wants this stuff. Nobody wants to be this kind of person or to be with this kind of person. The destination of our rebellious journey away from God is that we mentally unravel. We disintegrate. We unmake ourselves. As God hands us over to a debased mind, we become people we hate. This part is terrifying, and mostly because it's absolutely familiar, even ordinary. We are these people, and we do these things we hate. We don't want to covet, and yet we visit our neighbor's house and we covet. We don't want to gossip, but we hear a scandal and we just can't keep it to ourselves. We don't want to tell lies, but we get into a tight spot and we lie our way right out of it. And on and on and on. Paul's assessment is true. It's right on the money. These things are awful and these things are everywhere. They point to a deeply broken and unhealthy people and they resemble us. When we think about it, we find ourselves in a terrible state because we have standards, high standards for ourselves 
but we just can't keep them. We constantly miss our own mark for decent behavior. We shock ourselves by the things that we say and do. And all the while, we know that there's going to be a reckoning for this. Because of verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What wretched people. We know we're in so much trouble, and the only thing that helps is for other people to be in even more trouble. So we egg on our friends to join us in this mess and even be worse than we are, and we see all the time our culture approving of those who practice evil. Our consumer culture approves and encourages covetousness. The Disney company approves and encourages disobedience to your parents, and our political system approves and encourages boastfulness, doesn't it? We all prove Paul right again and again. And by the end of Romans 1, we might be feeling pretty rubbish about ourselves. But actually, that's good. I think that's what Paul was going for. He's given us a strong dose of reality. He's like the doctor with no bedside manner coming in to tell us that we've got cancer here, 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 and here. But it's okay, because Paul has the answer to the problem. And it's glorious and it's more than enough to solve it. So if the bad news is that we have failed to love God, and so we have worshiped idols, and so our hearts were darkened, so we followed our lust to dishonor our bodies, and then we fell prey to a debased mind until we were almost dead, then the good news solves the whole big mess in reverse. First, we finish the job and we die. We get baptized with Jesus. Uh, we, we die with Jesus in our baptism. And then we're raised to newness of life with the renewal of our minds. And then we're given the Holy Spirit so we no longer live according to the desires of the flesh. And then we believe in our hearts and offer God our love and worship again, crying out to him, Abba, Father. The whole of ourselves is redeemed by Jesus at the cross. And so chapter one was the bad news. And the rest of Romans is all uphill from here. But I want to close today with this thought. Even the bad news. It's hard to hear a bad diagnosis, but at least it's a diagnosis. At least we have a name for the problem. We knew there was a problem. We've lived with it every day of our lives. We knew that something was badly wrong here. And now we have a name for it and a reason the world is problem so clearly if he can give an accurate diagnosis and put his finger on where the cancer is then maybe he can fix it too so the bad news is good news the bad news is good news because at least we have a good god if the problem wasn't here with me it would have to be over there with god and if that was the case then there would be no hope so at least the problem is my fault and my good god can come in and fix it and the bad news is good news because it means that at least God cares. If God was there and he didn't judge, then it would mean he didn't care. And I, for one, would really rather fall into the hands of an angry God than there, for there to be no justice at the center of the universe. But God's wrath is revealed against my sin. I see this happening in me, even though I'm a Gentile. And that, friends, is a great comfort because it means that God cares about me. This unraveling of my heart and my body and my mind is God's wrath acting against me because my rebellion against him matters to him. And he wants me back. And he has not destroyed me yet. 
because he still wants me to come home. So I take this bad news as really good news. I once played tuba in a brass band and I played next to another tuba player called Helen and she knew that I was a Christian. So one time on a break, she asked me, John, do you think I'll go to hell if I don't believe in Jesus? And I told her, well, I believe what the Bible says, that in the end, God will judge all of us for our sin and find us guilty and will send us to hell. But in order to stop that, God sent Jesus to die in our place to save us from that fate. So yeah, Jesus is the only way out of it. And Helen looked really horrified <laughs> and she didn't talk to me again for a while. But um, looking back, I think I maybe should have asked her, Helen, do you believe something else that's less terrible? I mean, we could believe that there's no God, and then this awful world is all there is, and nothing in the universe can satisfy this ravenous hunger inside us, so we'll live a few measly years in misery and then cease to exist for all eternity. Is that better? Or, Helen, we could believe that God's soft, and he lets us into heaven anyway after what we've done to him, so actually there's no justice in the universe, and all the thieves and murderers who've ever lived are just going to get away with it. Is that better? Those seem to me like the only reasonable alternatives to hell, that either God isn't there or he doesn't care, and the other two are immeasurably worse, aren't they? So if hell's the one that's true, I take that as good news. All right, so I have two practical applications for us today coming out of Romans 1. First, that we keep the main problem the main problem, and second, that we don't leave the bad news out of the good news. So we need to keep the main problem, the main problem. Friends, the main problem is sin. It's always been sin and it's still sin. It's not coronavirus, it's not climate change, it's not politics, it's sin. We know why all this is happening because Paul spells it out step by step. And his description really accounts for everything we're seeing wrong in the world today. There's nothing new under the sun. It starts when we abandon our love for God and fall into idolatry and it cannot be fixed by any other means than by returning to God. So I, I kind of want to ask us not to be angry about other things, not to fight other fights unless we keep this main problem the main problem. And second, don't leave the bad news out of the good news. And by this I mean when you share the story of Jesus with your friends, don't leave out this first part, this part of judgment. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and leave out the wrath of God towards sin, because that would be like telling the story of penicillin without talking about disease. We might think that God's judgment on sin is just too negative, it's too unpopular, people don't want to hear about it, but actually, it's probably the most believable part of our whole gospel. I mean, it's the part that people will have the least trouble accepting, because we all know that there's a problem. We all feel deep in our gut that we're part of that problem and we're going to be in some sort of trouble with, in, with God in the end. So your friends aren't going to um, take much convincing on this first point. And having heard the first point and having got on board with you with the problem, they might just be as glad to hear a clear diagnosis as we are and as excited to hear the message of how Jesus can solve that problem as we are. So don't leave the bad news out of the good news.